want to invite you to open your Bibles to uh, Revelation chapters 15 and 16. We come to the next section in our study of the book of Revelation, and that's where we'll be uh, today. Some of you will be familiar with the story of Hudson Taylor. Perhaps you've read about him or heard stories about his ministry. Hudson Taylor uh, was a missionary in China, spent 51 years of his life ministering in China. He founded the China Inland Mission. And uh, I read his biography about a year ago and was moved by how uh, his commitment was fleshed out in his life serving in China and many interesting stories. But I want to share one particular experience that uh, was shared in his biography, and that is the story of the Yangtze Riot. In uh, August of 1868, uh, Hudson and his wife Maria, together with six other missionaries and four of their own children, had moved further inland into an area where they were experiencing a fair bit of resistance. Uh, there were many people not happy with them being there. And uh, this particular August, things were getting worse. Opposition and hostility towards them increased until on the 22nd of August, an angry crowd of Chinese began to form around their missionary home and compound. Uh, Hudson and another of the, the men, Duncan, George Duncan, made the difficult decision to leave uh, the others at the home and to try and see if they could make it to the local magistrate to ask for help to protect them, to, to dispel this uh, mob that grew to eight to 10,000 people. They took off and barely made it to the, the magistrate. They were stoned along the way, arrived there hurt, almost got locked out, but they forced their way in and cried out, uh, help, help, in some phrase that, that all of the Chinese there were obligated to respond to. It was a long process of them waiting and not knowing what was going on back at the missionary compound. Meanwhile, uh, this mob of eight to 10,000 began their assault on the missionaries who were left behind and the missionary uh, premises, throwing bricks and stones, assaulting people, attacking, burning, and looting. A number of the missionaries were seriously injured, though miraculously none were killed. When Hudson and Duncan returned several hours later, they found that the magistrate had in fact sent a guard to dispel the crowd and to stand guard through the night. But the next morning, the looters were back. The guard disappeared. guards disappeared shortly after sunlight, and looters returned. And Hudson Taylor strode out into the mob. He mounted a broken chair, and he addressed them with these words. We were a party of strangers. We came from a distance to seek your good. Had we meant evil, should we have come unarmed, or in such small numbers, or with our women and children? Without provocation, you have broken open our dwelling, plundered our property, wounded our person, and tried to burn down our premises. And now you are back in your greed of plunder to do us more mischief. Would we not have been justified last night in defending ourselves by attacking you in return? Uh, we, but we did not raise a stick against you or throw one stone. Are you not ashamed in the face of heaven at such outrages? And now we are defenseless. We cannot withstand you. If we could, we would not. We are here for good, not for evil. If you kill us, we die with a good conscience that we have not hurt any man's eye or injured any man's limbs. There, there are sick and wounded here and women and children. If you abuse us or kill us, we will not retaliate, but high heaven will avenge. 
Our God, in whom we trust, is able to protect us and punish you if you offend against him. Our God, in whom we trust, is able to protect us and punish you if you offend against him. As we turn our focus to Revelation 15 and 16, having these words from Hudson Taylor ringing in our heads will prove helpful. We come this morning to a very difficult, very sobering portion of the Revelation. We've encountered a number of those already. In regards to these two chapters, Daryl Johnson writes, It is an awful passage. Earl Palmer calls it the most tragic of all the scenes in the book of Revelation. It is a passage about God's wrath upon rebellious humanity. Here we will encounter another set of seven, seven bowls filled with God's wrath poured out on the earth. The late theologian J.I. Packer wrote these words, The modern habit throughout the Christian church is to play this subject down. Those who still believe in the wrath of God, not all do, say little about it. Perhaps they do not think much about it. To an age which has unashamedly sold itself to the gods of greed, pride, sex, and self-will, the church mumbles on about God's kindness, but says virtually nothing about his judgment. The fact is that the subject of divine wrath has become taboo in modern society, and Christians, by and large, have accepted the taboo and conditioned themselves never to raise the matter. As uncomfortable as it is, uh, we cannot faithfully read the Revelation, the Scriptures as a whole, without considering this difficult, sobering topic of the coming of God's wrath. Now, before we turn to and read our passage, there are a few things that uh, I want to remind you of, a few things that need to be said. We've been making our way through this last book of the Bible, the last book of the New Testament, the Revelation, literally entitled The Apocalypse, The Unveiling. Here, Jesus pulls back the curtains. He lifts off the covers so that we can see what is really real. Jesus enables us to see that there's more going on than, than we can see with our physical eyes. He, he enables us through the Revelation to see the present in light of the unseen realities of the future and to see the present in light of the unseen realities of the present. There is more going on than meets the eye. Over the last four weeks, we've walked through a section of Revelation, chapters 12 to 14, uh, the center, uh, the theological center of the book, I would contend, beginning in chapter 12. There, uh, Jesus shows us a vision. He helps answer the question, why, if the Lamb has been victorious, why is it that God's people suffer? Revelation 12, John looks and he sees a sign in heaven. First, a woman dressed in the sun, standing on the moon, crowned with a crown of 12 stars on her head. She is a sign pointing to another reality. Uh, she's pregnant, about to give birth. In front of her, John sees another sign, an enormous red dragon, poised in front of the woman, ready to devour her offspring the moment he's born. John looks again and he sees the son born and snatched up to the throne of God, protected from the, the plot of the dragon. And the dragon is filled with fury and stands on the edge of the sea. In chapter 13, we, we spent two weeks walking through that chapter where we were introduced to two agents, the dragon who is filled with fury at the offspring of the woman, that is the church, uh, those who put their faith in Jesus, uh, makes war against uh, the offspring of the church, uh, the offspring of the woman, the church, through two agents, the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth. 
And we walked through chapter 13 and recognized that the first beast, the beast from the sea, represents political powers, divorced from God, specifically in the context of the revelation, the empire of Rome. And the second beast, the beast uh, out of the earth, represents false worship that is uh, worship that rejects God and worships other things. And in the context of the revelation, the imperial cult, the worship of the emperors. The last, then last Sunday, we explored chapter 14 in three parts. First, a vision of the Lamb standing in victory with 144,000 on Mount Zion. Then three angels proclaiming. The first, proclaiming the gospel. The second, proclaiming the end of Babylon. And the third, proclaiming the coming judgment. And then we, we walked through the final scenes, the great harvest scenes, end times harvest. The harvest of those who are God's people and the harvest of those who have rejected God. Now, it's helpful to understand that as we turn to this part of the text, but it's important, it's vital that we understand also the historical context into which this was first spoken, shared. John, a disciple of Jesus, spent his life serving Christ. He had, he'd been a disciple during Jesus' earthly ministry. Now he's an old man in his mid-80s, been exiled to the island of Patmos, 40 miles off the coast of the Roman province of Asia, where he was the pastor to churches. He has been exiled because of his faith. On the Lord's day, he's worshiping, and he hears a voice like a trumpet behind him, and he turns and he sees Jesus, Jesus in all his glory, and Jesus commissions him to write what he sees and to send it to the seven churches, seven particular churches. He is to, Jesus' aim here is to prepare these churches in the Roman province of Asia for what is about to happen. A great crisis looms. The fury of the dragon is about to be poured out upon them. His two agents, the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth, are about to unleash on the, upon the church such horrific suffering. Suffering is on the horizon for some martyrdom, death. Jesus aims to prepare his people, to encourage them to be faithful, to rebuke them for where they are being unfaithful, and to, to warn them that compromise is deadly. The beast from the sea, clearly for the original hearers, is the Roman Empire in all its might. The beast from the earth, not some generic false worship, it is worship of the emperor cult, imperial cult. And if they refuse to compromise, if they refuse to participate with their fellow citizens, they fail to give their ultimate allegiance to Rome. They will be crushed. This is not theoretical. This was real for them, just like it was real for the Hudsons in China and their missionary colleagues. Just like it's real for our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world where to be faithful to Jesus may well mean losing their life even today, even as we're gathered here. The dragon in his fury wants to destroy the church, those who follow the Lamb, and wants to prevent any others from coming to know Jesus. That is the historical context in which we come to these chapters, and we need to bear that in mind as we come to chapters 15 and 16. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along. It's a longer passage. I'm going to read right through the whole thing. Beginning chapter 15, verse 1. 
I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and I saw in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed." Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person and of every living thing, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You are just in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your, and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat. And they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne, saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people. They cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. I want to do four things with you in the time we have remaining. First, I want to speak briefly about God's wrath. There's a number of things that I think we need to say. Second, I want to walk through the text uh, making observations. There's lots of details here, and we won't get to all of it, but I want to highlight some things. 
Third, I want to show you the important connection, the important link between these chapters and the story of the Exodus. And then fourth, I want to reflect with you on the implications of the passage for our lives today. So first, a few words about the wrath of God. In his book, Reason for God, Tim Keller writes, In our culture, divine judgment is one of Christianity's most offensive doctrines. I want to quote again part of what I read from Packer earlier. The fact is that the subject of divine wrath has become taboo in modern society. And Christians, by and large, have accepted the taboo and conditioned themselves never to raise the matter. There is much that can be said, as much that Scripture says about God's judgment, about God's wrath. And as we come to these chapters, it is vital that we, uh, we take note of a few things. First of all, if we think of God's wrath in terms of our experience with human anger, that is, your own anger or the anger of someone else, you've seen these outbursts, you've seen this violence. If we are thinking of God's wrath in terms of what we know as human beings from our own experience of anger, we are bound to go wrong. Because much of human anger, not all of it, but much of human anger is itself sinful. So how are we to think of the wrath of God? Well, Leon Morris, I think, helps us when he says that God's wrath is God's strong and settled opposition to all that is evil. He goes on and says it, it is a burning zeal for the right coupled with a perfect hatred for everything that is evil. Tim Keller makes the point, and I think it's really important and helpful to understand that, that the Bible describes God both as a God of justice and a God of love. See, our culture is all about, we want to hear about a God who just loves us. Everything's good. You know, don't worry about anything. But, but the Bible describes a God who is both loving and just. And then he says that, that God's justice and his love are in fact uh, closely bound together. He writes this, all loving persons are sometimes filled with wrath, not just despite of, but because of their love. Because of your love. If you love a person and you see someone ruining them, even themselves, you get angry. Thus God's wrath flows from his love and his delight of his creation. He is angry at evil and at injustice because it is destroying its peace and integrity. Love and justice go together. So, so we need to understand that God's wrath is not God exploding in some cranky fit. God's wrath is his settled and strong opposition to all that is evil, all that is destroying his good creation, all that destroys our lives. And it's actually important for us to understand the, this, this link between God's justice and God's love. I want to share a quote. Miroslav Wolf, a Croatian theologian who lived through the atrocities in the Balkans, who saw all manner of violence. He contends that it is so vital for us to have a theology of God's wrath, to, to, to give, give full uh, merit to what we read in Scripture when it comes to God's wrath if we are to follow Him as human beings who don't respond vengefully. He writes this, If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. 
The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many in the West. But it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. Let me read that again. It takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results in the belief from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. For Hudson Taylor and those with him, he said, God can judge you. For the believers in the Revelation who are about to face the wrath of Rome, who are about to be crushed, it is a belief in God's justice that can give us courage to love, to even in the face of death proclaim, to bear witness to the Lamb. The Bible teaches us that God will one day set all things right, that evil will be punished, that justice will be done and seen to be done. God's wrath will one day be poured out on the earth. In our text today, we see exactly that happening in the imagery and symbols of the revelation. Second thing, we're going to walk through the text now and look at some of what we see in this lengthy text. Uh, first, as we read what John has written, it is vital that we remember the genre of this document. This is an apocalypse. It is apocalyptic. It, it, is, uh, it is a genre that employs imagery, that employs symbols to communicate truths. Even back in chapter 12, I mentioned this already earlier today, John saw in, in heaven a sign, a woman dressed in the sun. That is, this is a symbol, this is an image pointing to a reality behind it. The woman dressed in the sun, standing in the moon with a crown of 12 stars, represented the messianic people through whom Jesus would come and uh, for whom Jesus came, those who would follow him. Uh, the, the red dragon is not literally a red dragon. The red dragon represents Satan, God's arch enemy. Over and over and over in Revelation, we see signs. Signs are not the reality. They point to a reality behind them. One day when we encounter Jesus, we will, will we see a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes? That's how Jesus is described in chapter 5. No, that's imagery, it's symbols, so we need to understand that. Bruce Metzger writes, the descriptions are descriptions of the symbols, not the reality conveyed by the symbols. Daryl Johnson explains it this way when it comes to chapters 15 and 16 and God's wrath being poured out. After reading Revelation 15 and 16, we are not to go looking for seven angels holding seven bowls full of awful stuff. We will not find an angel pouring a bowl of stuff into the earth or sea, or rivers, or air. This is all a symbolic presentation of the awful reality of judgment. We need to understand that. We need to remember that as we come to this, we are reading a document that is using imagery and symbols to communicate truth. Second observation pertains to the structure of this passage. I've already mentioned uh, here, sorry, there's, there's three scenes. The first scene begins in verse 1. We're introduced to seven angels. It is then interrupted, and then we come back to it, verses 5 to 8. The seven angels who will receive from one of the living creatures these bowls of wrath and who will then go pour them out on the earth. The second scene is the interruption in the first scene, and that is uh, this, in, this 
in, in the middle of the first scene, we see, we see those who have been victorious standing by a glassy sea, singing a song of worship to God Almighty. The third scene is the pouring out of the bowls of wrath, uh, chapter 16. Now, this is also, we should note, the third set of seven. We've encountered seven, the breaking of the seven seals, the blasting of the seven trumpets, and here the pouring out of the seven bowls. So we should understand that there's likely a connection, and we'll come back to that. A third observation arises from the second scene. We read in verse 2, And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God, and they sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Uh, there's some important things for us to notice here. Uh, a few of those we'll look at shortly when we look at the connection with Exodus, but it's important for us to understand that, that connection. But now I want you simply to notice who John sees. He sees this group of people, humanity, who have been victorious, who have overcome the beast and its image and the number of its name. John sees, he sees the believers to whom he's writing. He sees men and women in the churches, the seven churches of Asia, that he is writing. He sees those who have overcome. Do you remember the letters back in Revelation chapters 2 and 3? Uh, seven letters to seven real churches scattered around an ancient postal route. John was their pastor. John knew these men and women, and he is writing this commissioned by Jesus to share this word of warning, commendation, to prepare them for what is to come. And at the end of every letter, it said, to the one who overcomes, to the one who overcomes, to the one who overcomes, to the one who is victorious. Here, he looks and he sees those who have overcome. He sees those who have been victorious over the beast and the image and the number of its name. How did they overcome? How were they faithful? By remaining faithful to the Lamb. Even under great pressure to compromise. Even even under the very threat of death. They remained faithful even if it meant getting killed. That's how they overcame. They overcame by giving up their lives, by following the way of the cross, following the Lamb who was slain for them. See, the worst thing that the beast can do is kill you. That's it. That's the worst he can do. In the early church, where martyrdom was not just this theoretical, abstract thing that couldn't possibly happen. In the early church, the day of a person's martyrdom came to be known as the day of their victory. Daryl Johnson writes, it was a victory because they did not succumb to the pressure to compromise. They remained faithful. John looks and he sees those who have overcome standing by the sea. Fourth observation concerns the setting out of which the angels uh, come with the bowls of God's wrath. In verse 5, we read, After this I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. This is the second time in the Revelation that the temple is open. The first time was after the seventh trumpet blast back in chapter 11. Here again we see the temple and again it is open. And listen to what we read in verse 8. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. 
This should remind us of something. The temple filled with a cloud, filled with smoke, filled with glory. The temple, the tabernacle, was understood by God's people to be the very place of God's presence. You remember when when God led His people out of Egypt and in the wilderness, God's presence, this cloud of power and glory, thunder and lightning on the top of Mount Sinai. That's where God's presence was. That's where Moses met Him. And, And the people were not even permitted to touch the mountain. And when the tabernacle was done, God's glory, God's power descended from the mountain and filled the tabernacle of His holiness, His majesty. Years later, Solomon's temple, same thing, filled with God's presence, with His glory. Here, the tabernacle in heaven is opened and there's filled with smoke, filled with God's awesome, holy, majestic presence. And no one can enter into it until the seven angels were completed dumping their bowls. Tabernacle is also described as the tabernacle of the covenant law. That is, this is the place where God, when He gave them, God gave them the tabernacle, the place for His presence, and He gave them the Ten Commandments, which were put in the ark in the tabernacle, in the place where God dwelt among the people. God's demands on humanity, the the covenant law, the Ten Commandments. Now, it's so important for us to understand That God's laws are not arbitrary. God didn't create people and and then say, shoot, I have people. They need rules. That's not what this is about. God created us to be His image bearers. He created us to look like Him. And, And God's law is a reflection of the character of God. It is God's demands for us that we would be holy as He is holy that we would look like Him. You see, when we sin, when we violate God's laws, when we violate God's design, we in fact are becoming less human. Less who we were created by God to be. Sin makes us less. It dehumanizes us. Johnson writes, when we violate God's law, we violate ourselves. We go against reality. We end up ruining ourselves and creation around us. Out of the tabernacle, the open tabernacle, the place of God's holy presence, the place of God's holiness, that the angels come. God's wrath is His strong and settled opposition to all that is evil, all that violates and ruins His good creation, all that violates and ruins who He made us to be. It is His response to humanity's rebellion. Fifth observation is regarding the relationship between the seven bowls and the earlier sets of seven. We've encountered the seven seals, the seven trumpets, now the seven bowls. Are we to understand each of these? And if you've been with us, you should know the answer to this question. Are we to understand these as sequential events that we are to look for in history? 21 events in all? No. The breaking of the seals, you may recall, was like a movie, functions in the Revelation like a movie trailer, uh, introducing us to the major themes and the basic plot line of what we are to encounter. It it, it shows us humanity's resistance to the inbreaking of God's kingdom and the, the result, war, violence, famine, death, the martyrdom of the saints, 
and eventually judgment upon humanity. The seven trumpet blasts, in those we recognize God's warning judgments. Uh, they're, they're not His end time eschatological judgments. That is, it's not the, the judgment at the end of history that we encounter in the trumpets, no, but rather God's judgment in history. They were partial judgments. We read over and over and over again in the trumpet blast, a third, a third, a third. They are judgments, but they are partial They are evidence, in fact, of God's mercy. Every trumpet blast is an invitation. It's a cry to humanity to repent, to turn, to come to Christ, receive life. Now we encounter seven bowls of wrath. How should we understand them? Well, in verse 1 we read this, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. In the pouring out of the seven bowls, God's wrath is now fully executed. There's no holding back. There's not a quarter like we encountered in the seals. There's not a third like we encountered in the trumpets. Now it is total and complete. However, as far as the drama of Revelation goes, things still don't wrap up. Remember I said earlier that Revelation isn't this chronological timeline, but but we, we, we sometimes circle back and come at things from a different angle. And so we're going to encounter in chapters 17, 18, and 19 God's judgment upon Rome. So we're going to circle back and we're going to look at that from another perspective. But here we see God's final judgment. His final judgment upon Rome cast against the backdrop of God's end time judgment. God is speaking here to encourage the church. He's speaking of the the final destruction, the final judgment of Rome against the backdrop of God's end times eschatological judgment. But in the context of the drama of Revelation, the end of this chapter, chapter 16, we stand on the threshold of eternity. What remains to happen is the eschatological judgment itself, which we will encounter as we walk through the last chapters of the Revelation. Sixth observation about the content of the bowls. We read those and it's horrific. I want to remind you that it's imagery. It's symbols. Uh, doesn't mean that it's not horrific. It simply means that we don't, we don't look for these specific things. That the, the message is in the symbols. That, that it is a dreadful thing to stand under God's judgment. Johnson puts it this way, the imagery is intended us intended to make us feel the horror of the consequences of not repenting. And we don't have time to go through all the details through all of the various bowls of, of wrath. We really don't have time. Um, I'm going to move fairly quickly. I want to touch base on, on a few things. Uh, first and perhaps really important for our purposes this morning is that there is a connection between uh, these plagues, these seven bowls, and the plagues in the Exodus story, and we're going to look at the Exodus story in a moment. There's a number of things going on in the sixth bowl. We can look at real quickly. Um, I'm going to skip some things. But uh, these evil spirits that come out of the mouth of the dragon look like frogs. Again, a connection to, to, uh, to the Egypt story, the Exodus story. The unholy trinity, the dragon, the beast from the sea, and the false prophet seek to deceive many and inspire many, lead the kings of the earth in war against God rather than submitting to God. They gather, we read in that sixth bowl, they gather at a place called Armageddon. Now, there is no place in the Middle East called Armageddon, but 
what is interesting is that Armageddon is a transliteration of the Hebrew Har Megiddo, Mount Megiddo. And what's interesting about that is about 60 miles from Jerusalem, it is a place where Judah uh, entered into battle against the Roman, uh, sorry, the, the, the empire of Babylon. Historically, this happened well before John's day. And Judah lost. And that was the beginning of the end. They, they were soon conquered utterly by Babylon and taken into exile. So the point here is that with the sixth bowl being proclaimed, uh, poured out, it is proclaiming a great reversal. Remember God's judgment. <coughs> God's judgment on rebellious humanity is also the occasion of salvation for God's redeemed. And so we see that here, that the, the sixth bowl being poured out, there's a great reversal coming. Last thing I want to highlight, and we encounter this a number of times as the bowls are poured out, is that is a continual stubborn refusal to repent of what they've done. Even at this point, even as God's wrath is being poured out, humanity remains rebellious, remains stubborn in their refusal to repent. Instead of worshiping God, they curse God. They blame God. They remain in their rebellion against God. I wanted to spend a couple of minutes just making this connection with the Exodus event because it's so, so significant here. I've already referenced the fact that the, the plagues that are unleashed with the pouring out of the bowls uh, point to the plagues of the Egypt story, the Exodus event, but more is going on than that. Look with me at this reference in chapter 15. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name, they held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Remember the Exodus event? Those who don't, God's people had been cruelly oppressed in slavery for 400-some years in Egypt. And God had sent Moses to Pharaoh to say, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go. And, and Pharaoh, no matter what signs God gave to Moses to show Pharaoh, Pharaoh in his stubbornness refused. He refused to repent. He refused to humble himself before God. And eventually, after the ten plagues, he let the people go. But as they left, he changed his mind and he sent his armies after them. And remember that point where God's people are between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is coming. And, and God miraculously saves them through the sea. The waters part, they pass through on dry ground, and the armies pursue them in, and the sea closes in, and they are judged. They are killed. And Moses leads Israel in a song as they stand on the edge of the sea, not celebrating the judgment that just fell on the Egyptians, but celebrating God's rescue, God's salvation. That is what John sees. He sees those who've overcome standing by the sea, singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Is that not a marvelous picture in the midst of this? 
that in the midst of God's judgment, we are people who have been saved by God and worship God. We celebrate His grace. But the reality is that it is in the presence of God's judgment that we recognize and see God's salvation for us. In fact, it was Christ Himself who bore God's wrath for our sin. Christ suffered so that we might be saved. And so we worship before a cross. We worship before this reminder that Christ suffered what we deserved so that we might have life. And that moves us to worship. Just briefly, a couple implications for us as readers of the text today. Have you ever seriously contemplated a world devoid of God's wrath? A world in which justice is never ultimately done. Where evil is un- goes unchecked forever. Where things would fail to ever be as they were meant to be. See, God's wrath, as unpleasant as it is, is a vital part of the Gospel message. It, it declares that one day God will set all things right. That, that one day justice will be done and will be seen to be done. And the Gospel declares God's great love for us, for humanity. That God sent His Son Jesus to bear wrath for us. To go to the cross and absorb it. Jesus speaks in John's Gospel, speaks about, shall I not drink this cup, the cup of God's wrath? That is, on the cross, Jesus drank that cup to the bottom. He drank every last drop so that we would not need to. That is the Gospel we proclaim. Not a Gospel that just says, oh, God just loves you and everything's fine. No, a Gospel that says, we deserve wrath. We deserve His punishment. We we deserve that because we have rebelled against Him. We've thumbed our noses against Him. We've gone our own way. And when we recognize the holiness of God and the fact that we cannot approach Him, the temple filled with His glory, we cannot go there until Christ comes and He opens the curtain and He makes a way. He bears the wrath. He drinks every last drop so that we have confidence to approach the God of the universe, the Holy One. When we recognize that that's the heart of the Gospel. Moved to worship. Two things I want to say. If, if you are not a follower of Jesus yet, I urge you today, consider the love and justice of God. In His love, He has come for you to call you to come to Him. In His love for you, He went to the cross and suffered what you deserve so that you can receive life. You're called to repentance. Repentance is turning. It is casting yourself on Christ. It is, it is agreeing with Him that, that you have done not just things, but that you have, you have, your heart has been wicked. Your heart has been bent and turning to Him and inviting Him to give you a new heart and to transform you and to throw yourself on Him and say, Jesus, You are my only hope. Repentance is the only way. And here we see so many in, in Rome, in the world, in Babylon, who refuse, they curse God, I urge you, turn to God in repentance. To those of us who are believers already, 
Repentance is not something we do simply once. Repentance is, in fact, the way of discipleship. Martin Luther wrote his first thesis on the 95 Theses that he nailed on the Wittenberg church door in Wittenberg, Germany in 1517, the start of the Protestant Reformation, though it certainly didn't, wasn't his intention. The first of his 95 Theses was this, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That doesn't mean that there's no progress. It just means that, that our posture is one of repentance. Not, not being sorry just for the consequences of our sin. Not sorry when we get caught, but, but sorry because we recognize that in Christ there's no condemnation for us. And so then, the, the, let me read what, uh, what Tim Keller says. The gospel tells us that as Christians, sin can't ultimately bring us into condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's the heinousness of sin. Heinousness is therefore what it does to God. It displeases and dishonors Him. And that, that we are continually turning to Him out of love for Him, wanting to respond in faithfulness to Him. That, that repentance is our regular posture, always looking to God, always looking to please Him, resting in the finished work of Christ and responding in repentance and faithfulness. And we ought to be those who are repenters who gather to worship God, that all of life would be about glorifying God, that we would see what Christ has done, what He has borne for us, and that our hearts would be filled with joy, and that as we go into the world where we are surrounded by those who are lost in darkness, who have yet to repent, that, that they would see in us, not people who have out altogether, but that they would see repenters who are rejoicing and worshiping the One who has saved them. Hudson Taylor and those with him went to China, pouring out their lives, risking their lives, not, not living a safe life, not living an easy life. They risked it. They poured out their lives to share with lost, lost people who were in desperate need of hearing the good news. It was the love of God that drove them to that. Love of God, love for God and love for the lost. And it was a bold confidence in God's care even if it meant death, that God would one day set all things right. It was that belief, that knowledge, that gave them courage to be faithful. Our God in whom we trust is able to protect us and punish you if you offend against Him. God's love and God's justice, our worship and God's wrath. Let's bear these things in mind as we seek to follow Him faithfully for His glory. Amen.